Hey, hey, church family, how are you all doing this morning? Good, good. Whether this is your first time or you've uh, been here going here a long time, we're just so glad that you're here with us this weekend. My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as we begin this morning, I want each of you to think back to your childhood for a moment. Specifically, what did you like to play with, and what did you like to pretend to be? For me, I like playing with a lot of things. I like playing with Matchbox cars, G.I. Joes, of course, Legos, but also Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, just to name a few. But besides playing with those things, and I know I'm never going to hear the end of this from some of our students that I work with, I also like playing house with my friends and family. You know, we would take turns uh, being the mom or dad. We would take turns uh, being the siblings or sometimes even the baby. And yes, there were times where even I would get on all fours and pretend that I was the family's dog. <laughs> now, during the course of playing house, though, with my friends in my neighborhood, there was always a guy and a girl that wanted to get married. So we naturally had to have a wedding for them. But the only problem was, well, actually, there was two problems. One, a lot of my friends at this time had never been to a wedding. And number two, a lot of them had never set foot inside of a church. So naturally, because they knew that my family had been to a couple weddings, and that because they knew that we went to church, I never had the chance to get married until later in life because they always made me play the role as pastor. They figured that I would know how to play church with them. I hadn't been to too many weddings myself, but I was pretty confident in my capabilities because I had seen the movie The Princess Bride a million times. And I figured that because I saw that movie so much, I would be perfect for the job. And yes, I always squeezed out to say, marriage is what brings us together today. <laughs> when we see kids playing house or playing church, we laugh at how innocent and cute they are as they try to reenact or replay what they have seen or heard. But the reality is, when adults in congregations play church, not only is it not funny, it's dangerous. In fact, it's downright deadly. But to make matters worse, I think there's a lot of times when we as Christians don't even realize that we're actually playing church. This week, while I was preparing my message, I couldn't help but think of the many names and faces of people that I know that don't go to church. I couldn't help but think that maybe, just maybe, our playing church is why so many people actually refuse to step foot inside of one. I couldn't think to myself that maybe so many people have been hurt by church because we were just content playing this thing we know as church. And as a result, they came and they felt like something was missing or lacking, like genuine compassion, grace, or love. Fortunately for us, God has provided to us what a picture of a real, living, breathing church is in his word. So that we don't have to be content playing church, but we can actually be the church as he always intended it to be. Because here's the reality. When the people of God, the church, live out the mission of Jesus in their everyday lives, it changes everything. It changes everything. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be taking a look at verses 41 through 47. 
As you know, since January, we have been in our Storyline series as we've been making our way through the entire Bible. Several months ago, we took a look at the Gospel of John, which painted a clear picture to us of who Jesus was, but also what he did for us on the cross. And last week, we began taking a look at this book called Acts, which tells us a story of how God established his new people that he called the church. We pick up today, right where we left off last week, when the disciples and Jesus' closest friends had a living, breathing experience with the Holy Spirit. This encounter changed everything as it related to God and others. These women, men and women were so filled with the Holy Spirit that we read that they actually went into the streets and actually were enabled to speak in different tongues and languages that they never knew were able to before, and they shared the gospel with anybody and everyone who would be willing to listen. We also read that these, these crowds of people who heard the gospel that day were pretty confident that these people that they, they saw before weren't able to speak in these different languages. And there were also disciples who were speaking in languages that they, they couldn't understand. So a lot of them accused these men and women for being drunk. But then Peter, yes, the same Peter who is one of Jesus' best friends, the same Peter who betrayed Jesus, yes, the same Peter who got out of the boat in order to get to his Lord in the raging sea, but sunk because of his lack of faith, but also the same Peter that Jesus promised that he was going to use to help establish his church was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he spoke up. He assured the crowds that day that these people were not, in fact, drunk, but they were filled with the new spirit of God. He went on to explain how these people and their sin caused there to be separation in their relationship with him. And he also explained clearly to them that it was their sin that caused them to want to crucify Jesus on the cross. As a result, the gospel impacted many hearts that day. And here in Acts 2:41 through 47, we see how the first members of God's new church responded to living out his mission and their everyday lives. Let's take a look at what they did. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everybody was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the start. This is the new church. And they provide for us today a model and description of what a group of people who live out God's mission in everyday life should look like. In order, in order for us to learn from their example, we need to ask ourselves some key questions like, who were they? What exactly did they do? And why did what they do matter so much? Because it's only then that we can understand what being the church is really all about. It's only then we don't no longer have to play church. Would you please pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for everybody here this morning.
And God, I thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And I also thank you so much for the gift of your church. It's such an honor and privilege to be able to call ourselves your people. And Lord Jesus, as we take a look at the example of this new church and these these first believers who made up your new church, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would come alive in us, that you would ignite our hearts to have the same vision, the same heartbeat that you do for the church. In your precious and holy name, amen. So the first question is, who were they? Well, the timeline between the Last Supper and Pentecost was relatively a short period of time. It was probably only 40 or 50 days apart. Because of this, I think it's safe to assume that the crowds who heard Peter's message that day were very likely people who had experienced Jesus themselves. There were probably people who heard Jesus' teaching. There were people who potentially received Jesus' healing or more than likely knew of somebody personally who had. There are people who saw or heard about the many miracles of Jesus. These are people who saw Jesus, heard of Jesus, and possibly, even before this point, considered following Jesus. And also, some of these same people who responded to that gospel that day probably yelled, crucify him, crucify him, crucify Jesus. And then they watched as Jesus was pulled off the cross and placed into the tomb and was declared dead. You see, what made any of these people who made up this new church so significant was actually not based upon who they were, what they had done, or even what they had experienced and seen. But instead, what made this group of people so significant was who and what they received. In verse 41, we were told that 3,000 people were moved on that day of Pentecost. Peter's word to them was simply the gospel. He explained it in the power of Jesus and how they each needed to repent from their sins in order to have a right relationship with God and in order to confess that, in order to live out the way that he wanted them to. And these people, not only was the gospel simply spoken and taught, these people simply received it for what it was. The word received in the original language here meant to accept is true. What is also really interesting about this particular word is that in that time, it was also the same word that they used for the word welcome. So when a person of that time welcomed a person into their home, they were actually welcoming that person into the very intimacy of their daily lives. You see, what made these men and women so significant was that they welcomed Jesus fully into their everyday lives. And as we will see and understand in a few moments, these people who made up the new church understood that believing the gospel required them to live out the mission of their God in everyday life. So what did these people do? Well, in these verses, we see that they were devoted. The word devoted means to continue to do something with intense and intentional effort, even though it might be difficult. What history tells us is that being a Christian at this time was not easy. In fact, we know from history that it was very difficult. We know that for many of these first believers, they were often made fun of, beaten, and that some of them even died as a result of their devotion to Jesus. Why were these men and women able to stay true to what God did in their hearts that day on Pentecost? Well, I believe it's because 
they devoted themselves not only to the teachings of Jesus, but they devoted themselves to living out the ways of Jesus. To be devoted to something means that we do it continually. We cannot say that we are devoted to something unless we're intentional about making it a part of our everyday lives. As we can tell from this new church, they were devoted because they were committed to making the church and its practices a living, breathing reality. So what were these people devoted to? Well, these verses plainly tell us that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Very simply, they were devoted to God's word. Luke tells us in these verses that these people were actually filled with awe and wonder at the many signs and miracles that the apostles were doing. But here's, what inter- here's what's really interesting. Luke doesn't say, though, that these people were devoted to these signs and wonders, but instead, Luke makes it clear, and on purpose, he says, they were actually devoted to the word of God. You know, I find this to be really interesting, that the apostles were doing all these crazy and outlandish, awe-inspiring miracles and works. Because earlier, Jesus promised them in John chapter 14 that they one day would be able to do greater works than him. Hmm. That's kind of surprising. Because in the Gospels, we read how Jesus healed the sick, how he multiplied provision, how he controlled the seas and nature, and yes, he even brought people back from the dead. If you're like me, I cannot even begin to make up in my mind how these disciples and first believers were going to be able to do greater works than Jesus. But then wait. We see in this passage that 3,000 people just moved from death to life. We see 3,000 people that just moved from darkness to light. Someone in that crowd that was once considered an enemy of God was now being called a child of God. You see, these greater works that Jesus speaks of happen as a result of people hearing and receiving God's word. These amazing, aspiring things that happen at the birth of a new church came about because people not only believe the gospel, because they're also devoted to it. That's why the early church was so devoted to God's word, because it was the power of God. It was the only thing that could help a person come from death to life. What else? Well, the Bible tells us in these verses that they're also devoted to fellowship, to each other. We read here, all the believers were together and had everything in common. The word common here in these verses refers to what we know as friendship or fellowship. But in practical purposes, this word actually means something so much deeper than we often know. In the original language, this actually described a person who lived their life in so, such a close proximity with others that they continually embraced a what's mine is yours attitude. Aren't you, aren't you grateful that Jesus himself didn't harvest and pull all his resources together for his own benefit while he was here on earth? If Jesus wasn't committed to living in fellowship and holding all things in common with us, we would be in a lot of spiritual trouble because then he wouldn't have freely given himself up on the cross for our sins and salvation. But he did. In fact, in Matthew 20, 28, it says that Jesus Christ came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived his life in such a way that reflected of what's mine is yours attitude. 
He made it his mission to hold all things in common with us so that we might be able to hold common the life, love, and salvation that his God had to offer. This is why these men and women who made up the new church in Acts 2 freely gave up what they had with each other because they understood completely all that Jesus had freely and lovingly given up to them. So they were a learning church and a loving church. But the third thing we see is that they were also a worshiping church. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. When we read breaking of bread, what we're, what we're hearing is what we know today as communion. But what's interesting is that they did communion a little bit differently. Yes, they did it formally in the synagogues, but most likely, church historians tell us, they actually had these parties at different people's homes in which they would always have a time, I would say, of laughter and fellowship and eat a great meal so their stomachs were full. But then at those same parties, they would make sure that their souls were full. And then they would partake in the elements, just as Jesus talked about that night that he was betrayed. And then when we read about the prayers here, he was not just, the the people here weren't just doing private prayer, but they're also committed to corporate prayer together. And these two things define their worship. But what I also think is really interesting is that this new church also had a balance and a rhythm to how they worship. They simply scattered and they gathered for their worship. They would meet together formally in the temple for worship, but they would also meet daily or maybe other time once a week in people's homes, like we do today for life groups or in formal times of worship. Why did they do this? Well, I believe it's because these people understood the true meaning of worship, but they understood the true meaning of the church. You see, for them, worship wasn't just singing songs uh, on the Sabbath at the synagogue one day, but it was an everyday event in which it was a lifestyle in which they wanted their lives to be an expression of worship to God and to the world of how great he was. But they also understood that church wasn't just confined or defined to a building or a place, but it was actually them as the people, his people, living out his mission and everyday life. So why does what they did matter so much? Have you been noticing or paying attention to the fact that I've been referring to these people as the new church and not the first church. You see, it's really important for us to realize that this new church was actually an expression of what God had been up to all along since he created the world. Sin is why this world is in a perfect place, and we know sin is why you and I are separated in our relationship with God. But God, out of his infinite love and perfect design, chose to create a people for himself that would one day live out his mission of love, hope, and redemption. We see in Genesis how God promised Abraham that one day through his descendants, he was going to create a nation that would be set apart for him, that would literally bless the world around them. And then likewise in Isaiah, God specifically promises his people, the Israelites, that he would send them a servant named Jesus that would not only save, that would not only save them, but enable them to actually bring the blessing of heaven down here to earth. You see, the church in Acts just didn't happen by chance. In fact, it wasn't even thought of or conceived in the human mind. It has always been a part of God's plan since the beginning of the world to use his church to redeem the world and to usher heaven above down here to earth today. This is why the new church was so significant. 
because it showed others and it shows us today that God is still in the business of making all things new. The church, simply put, is God's people living out the mission of Jesus in everyday life. While we just learned what this looked like for the first century church or the new church, what does this look like for you and I today? Specifically, what does this look like for us here at Door Creek? In order to be an everyday-looking church, there are four things that I think you and I need to consider. And before we get to them, I just want to say two things. One, I know that what's about to be said here is not the end-all or say-all for the church. And because of that, what I'm really hoping and what I'm really praying is that as we think critically about our attitudes toward church, but also God's vision for the church, that it would bring out a lot of discussion, especially for us here, and that it would motivate us to try to live out God's mission of redemption. So first, in order to be God's people who live out the mission of Jesus in everyday life, we need to look upwards. One of the things that I'm most proud of about my home state of Minnesota is the Mall of America. Can I get an amen? I mean, seriously, though, even if you're like me and don't like to shop, no one can argue about the impressive nature of this particular mall. Whether it be its amusement park, aquarium, its unique and delicious restaurants, or being able to shop in one of its 500 different stores, millions upon millions of people enjoy and consume what this mall has to offer. Spiritually speaking, I think that far too many of us myself definitely included, live our lives as if we were going to the mall. We go to church and live with a consumer mentality. Here's just one example. Have you ever found yourself going to church and as a result of the worship not being on point or, or the message not being uh, very good, or even because you didn't walk away with anything worthwhile that you felt that your attendance that day wasn't worth it? Or how about the opposite end? Have you ever gone to church and you were so satisfied with the worship, the message was on point, and you did receive something, and you left feeling, man, I'm so glad I went to church that day. I think that these two extremes reflect our natural tendency to approach the church as if we were going to the mall so that you and I can just get our personal spiritual goods and services. We also run into this tension in our daily lives, am I right? Or the world tells us that we shouldn't do things or invest in things unless they directly benefit us, unless they build us up in our personal kingdoms. But here's a harsh reality that I've been wrestling with. While church and life outside it involves us, these things are not ultimately about us. The church does not exist just to provide entertainment, build up our self-esteem, or just to provide a place to foster friendships. The church's design by nature exists exclusively to worship Jesus. But let me stop here and say that I truly believe that a church should provide opportunities for enjoyment, learning, experiencing community. And I hope that the, these things do take place in churches everywhere, and especially here. However, if our focus for going to church and living out our lives become all about us, and having these incredible experiences then we run the risk of completely missing out on why God chose to create us and the church in the first place. God created the church and us to be living, breathing expressions of his glory and power to the world. 
God actually created the church to call the world into a right relationship with him and to help us, his children, become more like him for his glory and honor. Colossians 1.17 goes as far to say, all things have their meaning and purpose in Jesus. You see, if we make the church about us, people who are broken and fallen, it's no wonder why so many people find church to be meaningless and unsatisfying. There's no wonder why many people today maybe never want to step foot inside of one. If Jesus is not the reason, or at least at the very center for why we go to church, then all meaning for what we're doing here is actually missing. Listen to what Martin Luther once had to say about the church. For just as an individual must uh, continually return to the grace of Jesus for satisfaction and sanctification, a local church must continually return to the gospel as well. Our churches must be fully centered on Jesus and his work, or else death and emptiness is certain, regardless of worship style or sermon series. Because without the gospel, everything in a church is meaningless and dead. The church exists to point us and others to someone who is far greater than ourselves. When the church and its people make much of Jesus, the world will actually want to know much about him. The reality is, an everyday looking church requires us as God's people to look up and to remember who church is ultimately about. Secondly, we need to look inward. And what I mean by this has a lot to do with our internal attitudes towards church. What is your attitude towards church today? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Feel like it's more of a bother than what it's worth? Have you been hurt by church? And let me just stop there for a moment, and I wish I could say more about this. But for those of you who have been hurt by the church, I can say that I've honestly felt your pain, and I'm genuinely sorry for that. But right now, I want to talk to those of us who do attend church regularly, but do often with the wrong attitudes. Maybe some of you are here this morning because, let's be honest, you don't really want to be, and you just want to get on with your day. Maybe you find church to be boring, and you find yourself wanting to be at home so that you can watch a certain football game at noon, be with family or friends, get caught up on Netflix, eat delicious food, or let's be honest, catch up on sleep. But let's take a moment and think about something incredible. Right now, in the very near presence of God, thousands upon thousands of his angels are singing songs of praise before him. And every single time we gather here on the weekend to praise him corporately as a church, our gathering is actually a foretaste of this internal gathering. Our worshiping together actually shadows and reflects eternity to the world. In Revelation 5, 11 through 12, we see this. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering in tens upon thousands and ten times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, honor, glory, and praise. Here we get a picture of what heaven will be like, where thousands upon thousands of angels, but also thousands and thousands of us will be gathered before the throne of Jesus and declare with a loud voice how worthy he is. 
A famous theologian and pastor had this to say about our attitudes towards the church. He went as far to say, the reality is, if we find church to be boring and not terribly worthwhile, then chances are we'll feel the same way about heaven. Because our corporate gatherings here are a shadow of eternity. Even our imperfect, incomplete expressions of worship as the people of God should foreshadow the perfect response that is to come. Secondly, I've been here before, but maybe some of you are here today at church out of ritual, obligation, or legalism. Maybe you come to church because that's what your family did, and that's just something that you always do. But for this example, let's just pretend, guys, for those of us who are married, we decided to get our wives some flowers. And let's pretend she asked us why we decided to give her these flowers, and here's maybe one of our responses. Just because. I thought you needed them. Or this is one that I thought about saying but realized I shouldn't. Um, it's because other guys are doing the same for their lives. So I thought it was the right thing to do. Your wives might be impressed by saying that, but let me tell you, I know for a fact my wife Sarah would not be impressed, and chances are I'd be on the couch for the next few weeks. They probably won't be impressed by those answers. But here's an answer that I think our wives would love to hear for why we chose to give them flowers. It's because I love you, and you have my heart, and I want to express my devotion to you. When it comes to going to church, I truly believe that God longs to hear these same answers from us. God wants us to attend church not because we have to, but because we generally want to and because we love him and desire to give him our absolute devotion. I recently heard someone say that the cars that we drive say a lot about us as a person. For some of you, that means you're in good shape, but if you're like me, you're not so much in good shape. Because my family, we've had a lot of lemons. In fact, um, I remember driving a student home once from youth group, and we decided to go to T-Bell to get some food. And in the parking lot, uh, the brakes went out. And I literally almost killed somebody in a cardboard cutout. Um, also, at one point, our car would stall when you were going 55 miles down the highway. And that wasn't very good for my wife when she was pregnant with our first child. Uh, and then also, the same car, the speedometer would just not work, so we always had to wing it and guess how fast we were going down the highway. That's not very safe. Nice car. Well, I'm not sure whether or not the cars we drive truly reveal who we are as people. I am confident in the fact that our attitudes and the way that we view church says a lot about how we view Jesus, not only to him, but to the onlooking world. If we aren't generally excited about being in the very near presence of God at church on the weekend, why would anybody else here on this earth be generally excited about being in his presence in heaven for all of eternity? Thirdly, in order to be God's people who live out the mission of Jesus in everyday life, we need to look across. Specifically, we need to look across at the other people who already attend our church. Technology is incredible, and not a day goes by where I'm not impressed with it. In fact, my wife recently gave me an iWatch because I love all things Apple, and let me tell you, it's incredible because I can actually turn on the lights <laughs> of my house with it. I can actually uh, check my fantasy football scores when I'm on a date with her, and she doesn't even realize I'm doing it, but now she's caught on. <laughs> but maybe you can relate with this. 
we've become so reliant on technology because it's made our lives easier. And it has allowed humanity today to be more connected, more informed, and more social than any other time in history. Consider this for a moment. Facebook claims it has over 2 billion users. Instagram says it has over 850 million users. And Twitter alone says it has over 155 daily users. And Snapchat says it has over 195 million daily users. But here's the deal. Our connectivity does not always equate to relational, intimate community. In fact, I would say that even though the majority of the world and society today is the most socially connected, that there's never been a time in our history that we've been this relationally disconnected. Being able to make quick connections with people doesn't automatically mean that there's really any real depth in our relationships. A personal relationship with Jesus. We use this phrase a lot inside the walls of our church. And while I think this phrase is really helpful in describing a close relationship with Jesus, I think it only goes as far to describe part of the truth. Because this phrase neglects the reality that God's design is for us as believers to be deeply connected and committed in community with each other. The reality is while our faith and relationship with Jesus is very personal, it was never meant to be private. Yes, we have been individually saved by Christ, but we're not the only individual saved. Jesus in the Gospels actually invites and challenges us to wash the feet of those around us because he washed ours. Jesus, even to this day, continues to wash our dirty feet. We were like children who constantly come inside caked with mud, dirt, and filth. We come to him every day with our sin. And yet he continues with a towel around his waist to wash our feet daily. The painful irony here is not that we get dirty again, but for many of us as believers, we fail to actually put a towel around our waist so that we can wash the dirt off the feet of others. We cannot truly say that we're a part of the church if we only relate to God's people from a distance. Truly being a part of a church requires us to humble ourselves like Jesus and to wash others' people's feet in close proximity by using our time, our talents, and treasures to bless and help them grow in their faith. And if I'm really honest here, I am so grateful for the many men and women in my home church that washed my spiritual and emotional feet because without them, I would not be here today. But also being a Christian requires us actually to be humble enough to let other people wash and know our spiritual feet. Consider these words found in 1 John 4. They have this to say to us. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God himself is love. Since God has loved us so much, we surely ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought into full expression in us and through us. From these verses we read, we cannot truly say that we love Jesus if we don't put ourselves in a position to love others, but also to be loved by them.
finally, we need to look outward. What's interesting to me is that while reading the Bible, nowhere do we see God or Jesus saying to the world that they need or must go into the church, much, must go to church. Instead, he says to his church, his people, that they must go out into the world and be his church. You know, earlier, I kind of equated the, mall, uh, the church to being a lot like a mall where people come to get their spiritual goods and services. But I've heard it said before that the church, instead of being a mall, needs to be a lot like a hospital, right? Where hurting people can come in their emotional, physical, and spiritual pain, but then find healing. But here's the thing. If you go to the hospital just to get help today, physically speaking, you leave as a patient. But here in the church of God, when we leave the church and receive this healing, we're actually called to go out and be paramedics to bring relief to the world. The mission of Jesus, according to the Gospels, was to seek and save those who were lost. He came so that we might be able to have life and to be able to live it today in its fullest experience. He actually came to earth so that he might usher God's kingdom down to earth today and so that we don't have to wait for it later when we get into heaven. How we view heaven is very important for how we view the mission of the church. You see, when Jesus died and raised, was raised from the dead and then sent it into heaven, he went into this place that I like to call the control room of earth, where God's will had already been perfectly established. This is a place that was free of suffering, death, and pain. I believe that one day, when Jesus returns, he's going to take this earth as we know it, and he's going to combine it into the ha- with the heaven that he knows it. And this perfectly heavenly world become one with our imperfect one. And as a result, the earth as we know it will be made new. Because of all this, it is the mission of the church, God's people, to usher into the kingdom of heaven into the right here and the right now. Our job as the church is help make all things new. We do this simply by doing two main things. There's so much more, but these are things that God has put in my heart. We do this by being people who are committed to justice and evangelism. Justice, in simple terms, is trying to make things right in our communities. It doesn't take long to notice that our world and even things in the community of Madison are not how they should be. Whether it be racism, poverty, substance abuse, crime, or opportunity gaps, We as God's people here at Door Creek have been placed right here and right now to help alleviate the hardship and pain of these things and to give Dane County a glimpse of heaven today. There's much more I could say about that, but I want to challenge and encourage you. If God is doing something in your heart in regards to this issue of justice, please come and talk to one of us on staff. We have many opportunities that you can be a part of to help make things right here in our community. Lastly, We do this through evangelism. Evangelism occurs when we intentionally come alongside somebody else and help them become aware of God's great love for them. You know, one of the things I've come to realize about evangelism is that it starts at home. I have a six-year-old daughter, and not a day goes by where I don't look at Zoe and say, Zoe, you were made to be loved. You were made to be loved not only by your mom and me, but by the God who created you. What if we lived our lives in that way, where our actions, but especially our words, reflected that to those around us? 
There are people all around us who are spiritually hurting and wounded. And what they need to hear is that there's a God out there who knows them, loves them, and wants to be in a right relationship with them. And the people that tell them this is us. It's you, and it's me. Amen. The church, simply put, is God's people living out the mission of Jesus in everyday life. The mission for us as the church is to be a people who live in such close relationship with Jesus and each other that we can actually be a part of him bringing his kingdom down to earth. As we close today, I want to leave us all with a question. What would it look like if each of us who attended Door Creek took the time and energy to look upwards, inwards, around, and outwards? What would happen if we did this? Honestly, I believe that there would be no more playing church. And because we weren't playing church, it would literally have the capacity to change everything, even the world as we know it. Would you please pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you saved us on the cross. Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much that you didn't just save us, but as a result of being saved, you've called us to be your people on a mission. And Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would stir in our hearts, even mine, new attitudes about what you call your bride, the church. And Lord Jesus, I just pray that we wouldn't be people who go through the motions and just come here because we have to, but instead we'd be people because we come here because we generally want to show and express the honor and devotion that we have to you. And Lord Jesus, I just pray that we would be a people who not only gather, but we would be people who scatter, that we would be about bringing your heaven down to earth in the right here, right now. So Lord Jesus, be with us, but prompt our hearts to live out this mission as we leave. Amen. Amen.